remember that song, those of you, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. And you know that song kind of captures uh, the overall message of the series that um, about what we want for Christmas. And to really talk about the gift God gives and, and why he gives them. And, and, you know, part of that song is, um, you know, why does he want two front teeth? You know, he doesn't want his two front teeth so, you know, he can eat corn on the cob or steak. It's so that he can bless you by saying Merry Christmas to you. And that's the, that's the question that, you know, we've been presenting throughout this year. Why does God give us anything? Why does he want us to, to have anything to be anything? And it's not just for our own sake. If it is just for our own sake, you know, what's the, what makes Christianity different from, from anything else if it's just to make you a better person? Um, Christianity does help us become better, but it's more than that. And so I've been thinking about this, the gifts God gives, and then I st- you know, started to think about, you know, when we think about gifts, um, and somebody gives us gifts, it tells us something about what they think about us. And what, what we want, you know, tells us something about what we think about ourselves. And last week, we talked about the Neiman Marcus, you know, gifts, and, um, you know, the Ashton Martin, and the, you know, the private jet to five different places around the world. But this, this week, I wanted to, uh, to, to talk about, you know, you know, gifts that you might get where somebody's trying to maybe send you a message, let you know. Like, has anyone ever gotten one of these gifts for, uh, for Christmas? I think it's a teeth whitening, a toothbrush, or a deodorant. Um, you know, if you get that, somebody may be trying to send you a not-so-subtle message, uh, maybe a big old, you know, container of, of Listerine or something. Well, what about this? What if you decide to get a book? Get your house clean now, okay? Maybe it's probably not the best gift because the message isn't, you know, it's kind of not-so-subtle. Well, how about this book? Um, Anger Management Workbook for Men, okay? I know some of you, if you want to jot down the author and the publisher name, you can do that right now. <clears throat> you know, it's one of those things that, you know, what somebody gives us, it, they, they're saying something about us. Now, of course, we have the generic gifts, you know, just macadamia nuts, chocolate, doesn't really say anything except, hey, I want to give you something. But people that we really think about, we really, you know, kind of wonder, you know, what should we give them? You know, we, we are saying something. We're saying something we know that, that, they, that they like. And a lot of times we don't, you know, it's not necessarily something somebody needs. But it's kind of nice when, it's kind of nice when those things come together. When what you need is what you really want and that person who's getting you that gift knows that too. So when God gives us gifts, when he gives us gifts, he gives us gifts that he knows we need. He knows these are things that, that, that aren't just like nice little extras, but they're things that we need. 
But here's the question. Even if someone did give you teeth whitening and you really needed it, but you didn't, you didn't want to acknowledge that you needed it, well, you know, it's a different kind of problem. But with God, when he says, this is what you need, and you go, mm, it's not really what I need. It's not really what I need. We have to ask ourselves why. Why would we, why would we disagree with God on that? <clears throat> it seems that if we're really disciples of Christ, if we're really trying to follow Christ, that we should want whatever God gives us. This, that we should want whatever he thinks we need. That's, we should go, he's right. I get it. But for some reason, we're not always that excited about the gifts that God offers. And so for the next five Sundays, we're going to talk about different things that God gives us. Different gifts that he gives us. And today, you know, we're going to talk about this this one that, you know, it, it, it kind of hits at where our world is right now. Our world has, has gotten to, <clears throat> he's gotten to this point where whether you believe it or not, it doesn't really matter whether you believe this or not, it has affected our culture. And because it's affected our culture, it's, a, it's affecting our, how we think about things, and it's affecting our 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 everyday life. And, you know, it's this whole idea that, <clears throat> that um, you know, there is no such thing as a creator, that, that, that humanity, like the rest of the material world, just kind of came into to existence through, you know, some kind of random accident. And, of course, if, if there is no, like, mind behind creation, and it's just an accident, then you can't really talk about purpose. Because the only purpose that you could possibly come up with is, the only purpose is to continue to survive. That's it. And then even that's like, okay. But there's no real purpose. Any, any purpose that we, that we have would just be one that we would have to, have to self-generate. Because if you actually believe that everything was an accident and there's no purpose, then there's also the other belief that all of this is going to end someday. It's not a doomsday that you read in Bible or Nostradamus. It's what science tells you. Science tells you that eventually our sun is going to go supernova. And all that we know is gone. Everything that we think is forever is, is gone. It, is, it will be as though it never existed. And <clears throat> when you think about that, you know, you, you, even if you say, well, I don't believe that, enough of our culture believes that, that that's, how our, that's how we function. That's one of the reasons our, our culture is dominated by this, this view of what's sometimes called existentialism. That all that really matters is what's happening right now. In fact, it's all that's really real. 
And you, you might go, well, I don't believe that. Let me just tell you this. That for at least the last 50, 60 years, and probably longer, there has been an increase in, in the um, ability to shape your minds without you knowing it. And you might go, oh, who, what is this? Is he talking about school? Are you talking about mind control? No, I'm just talking about, just talking about advertising. Just talking about media. Just talking about things that, that you think you need and you cannot live without. Things that you're self-conscious about that in other cultures, other societies, it's not true. So they're not basic human needs. They've, you've been told they're needs. It's, it's values that you have. They've been given to you. And again, it's not for some, I don't think, evil plot. It's simply so business, businesses can sell you stuff. They, 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 they want to they influence you. They want to understand you to a certain point and then influence you to, to buy products. Whether they're intending to do this or not, what's happening is, is your values are being shaped. Now, they still look Christian to you. If anybody asks you, you'll still say, you know, God is the creator of all things. We have this eternal purpose, you know, this whole thing about faith and love. We'll still say all that, but we live just like everybody else. We're still just as materialistic. We're still focused so much more on, on what this world has and the things that fade. We're still obsessed with our own entertainment. And again, it's this, it's this thing that we, we're kind of like this walking contradiction. At least the people who believe in random accident, no purpose, at least they're being consistent. We're not. We say we believe something and we're living another way and we don't even know we're doing it. So we are affected. But here's the thing. When we talk about this, what happens a lot is people will think about themselves. They'll be like, well, if I wasn't created, if I'm just an accident, and if I really don't have anywhere to go, and at the end all of this is gonna disappear, then I'm in not in any way special. Um, you know, we think about that, but here's the thing we, uh, we don't think about. We don't think about the other side of that. The other side of that is this, Neither is anyone else. Why, if I believe all this, why do I think you should have any value either? You see what's happening in our, in our society, in our world. What, what's happening is, is, the, is the devaluing of human life. You're not special. None of us is. 
In fact, if there's any specialness to it, myself or to you, it's what we give ourselves. So I get to grant to you special status, which of course I can take away. And you get to grant to me special status, which of course you can take away. And so relationships, you know, don't have to last. I can move in and out of all kinds of things without any value because it's only value that I give. You know, it's kind of like I talked about this before um, about beanie babies. And I actually knew people that thought that they were going to be able to retire by buying beanie babies. I'm not kidding. And these were otherwise reasonably intelligent people. But what they failed to understand is Beanie Babies only had value because someone gave them value. And as soon as someone stopped giving them value, they didn't have value. And when enough people in the United States and around the world woke up and said, wait, they're just stuffed animals, and they're not even particularly good ones. You can't cuddle with them. They're not, you know, soft and furry. They're just beanie babies. Value is gone. That's our society. The only value people have is the value we give them. We don't think they're special because God created them. And he created them in his image. And he created them for a purpose. And if you really think about this, and I think the only reason more of us are not incredibly depressed is because we don't think about it. Because if you really thought about it, you, you wouldn't be able to function. This leads to this movement in our society that as soon as someone is considered useless, as soon as they no longer contribute to my life, we should somehow find a way to let them go. Whether that be elderly people, people who are facing different kind of handicaps. As soon as they're no longer useless, I mean, as soon as they're no longer of use, what value do they have? And so we come in this, to, this, to this kind of society, this kind of world, and, and you might think, well, um, I don't think this way. And maybe you don't think this way. But even if you don't think this way, I think sometimes we act this way. And we realize what this world needs is what it's always needed. It's needed hope. It needs hope. And for some reason, Christianity along the way, has always been about hope. Always been about hope. But for whatever reason, we, we kind, of, kind of bring that down to just mean one thing, or we don't really understand what that means. And we have a world full of people trying to cope with hopelessness. 
They're trying to cope with hopelessness. And some of them are just not thinking about it. Some of them have just decided to escape, to go into whatever world, whether it's just entertain myself, you know, plug myself into to television that I, it's not even television anymore, as I just watch it on my phone or on my computer, whether it's playing video games, whether it's, you know, chasing after all these different things that really don't have an end. They're just there. Whether I go through its substance abuse or try to escape in, in some other way and in relationships. But I'm trying to cope with hopelessness. Oh, I might for a period of time try to, to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to care about something. I'm going to care about the rainforest. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to care about my, my, my city and, and homelessness. And I can do that. But if all the time I have this nagging thing that's just there that says there is no purpose and all of this is going to burn up in the end anyways. If things get too hard and I ever ask the question, why? I'm going to stop. Or I'm certainly not going to do it with the same fervor. This world, people in different ways are trying to cope with hopelessness. And, you know, I, I like to, like, listen to different people or even when I watch different things on, in movies and TV and, and see more and more how the world is trying to, to say why you should have a reason to be good why you should have a reason to care about other people. And they're trying to tell you why you should when they don't believe that there's any absolute truth. And, and they're doing all they can. It's a world that's dealing with hopelessness. It's a different kind of hopelessness than what we find in the first century. When Matthew is going to tell this story about uh, the birth of Jesus, you know, it's different. He's talking to these, these people, these Jewish people who, who've been conquered by the Romans. It's been not quite a hundred years, but for about 70 years they've been conquered. It's people that some of whom are born into you know, certain levels of the society and there's no upward mobility. That's it. This is life. And it doesn't seem like there's any hope. Oh, they hope a Messiah is going to come. And different ones have tried, shown up. They've all lost. And it's in this situation that Matthew writes these words. He says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. It's a familiar story, something that we've read and heard, and, and you know, different times we hear different facts along the way. And by the way, if you want to hear more of that kind of stuff, come on Wednesday. Wednesday nights we do a Bible study based on our sermons, and we unpack some of that. But one of the things that Matthew is doing is he's telling these stories, and he's telling it in a particular way. He's, he's at this point, establishing themes that he's going to repeat again and again and again throughout the gospel, important themes. Um, and he's, he's trying to to help the people understand not just what happened, not just history. That's, that's not the main point of the Gospels. The main point of the Gospels is, is to tell us, you know, and tell his readers, okay, what, what, what do we take from this? What can we learn? How should we live? And so when Matthew is writing, he's, he's writing, you know, probably 10, 15, 20 years after, after Jesus has, has resurrected and ascended. The church has begun to grow, and the church is, is facing new, new, new problems. They're facing internal problems, external problems, persecution. And in the midst of this, Matthew records this, this story, story that was obviously told to him at some point, and now he's passing on and he's writing it. And the first thing that we see is we see the way this story is presented to us is that, is that something supernatural is happening. Something supernatural is happening. That we have this situation and Joseph is the one who's kind of like us. He's confronted with this, this thing that, that doesn't seem right. He knows that he hasn't had, you know, he hasn't had sexual relations with his, with his wife, Mary. He hasn't, he hasn't slept with her. He's waiting. You know, they're betrothed. They're legally married. He could do it if he wanted to. Um, if they wanted to, but he's, he, they're not. They're waiting a year, like was customary. And he knows that hasn't happened, and now she's pregnant. And for Joseph, like, he doesn't just buy it right off the bat. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, hey, I get your story, I accept it. In fact, he really doesn't. He doesn't accept it in any way, and he's decided to divorce her quietly. 
But it says, as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So here is Joseph in this situation that seems impossible. And he's given hope. He's given hope. And the story is told to us so that we might have hope. And the hope is that God can do the impossible. God can do the impossible. And that when God does the impossible, if we understand what that means, it means God does something contrary to nature. Contrary to nature. In other words, supernatural. It's not what would happen in the natural course of things. God intervenes. Now understand, it's not the way God usually works. How does God usually work? He usually works through natural processes. He usually works through people. And we talked about this before, about the story of, of, uh, of the people of Israel leaving Egypt and going to the Promised Land. Yeah, there's miracles along the way, but there's a lot more walking. There's a lot of walking. And you're like, well, if God was going to do supernatural things, why didn't he just transport them magically across the desert to the promised land? No, because the way God normally, typically works is through natural processes. But that doesn't mean he doesn't do the impossible. That he doesn't act supernaturally. Now you can think about this, but I don't want you to think too much about it because then you might miss the main point. But you, you can think about this, that, that you know, could Jesus have come into the world in different ways? Sure. Sure he could have. But here is what is supernatural. Here's what is impossible. It's what Katz read earlier. God became man. We call it the Incarnation. Something happened. Something happened that actually goes against the, this, biblical, this biblical principle that's, that's, that's you know, repeated again and again in, in Scripture. And it is this. It's that like begets like. And we've talked about this before. Human beings beget human beings. Dogs beget dogs. Cats beget cats. Apple trees beget apples. But here's something, something impossible, something miraculous, something supernatural. God became man. It's not the way things are supposed to work. Not in the way that God set up the world. God became man. God can do the impossible. Mary was pregnant even though she had not had sexual relations with a human being or anyone. It's from the Holy Spirit. And the impossible feeling that Joseph, you know, Joseph had, how he would ever have to be able to deal with that, it's dealt with.
see, there's this hope that when we're dealing with God, that although it's not his common practice to just do supernatural things every day, every moment, but there's this hope. There's this hope that God will do the impossible. But we need to understand, God doesn't do impossible things just because we want him to, just because we think we need him to. God doesn't do miracles just to do miracles. He's not just showing off. A lot of times things that we think are miracles are not really miracles. They're simply us believing in God and believing in how he has made us so that we do way more than what we thought we could. Sometimes it's not impossible. It's just highly improbable. And sometimes we see things that we think are miracles that aren't really miracles. We just haven't considered all the factors and variables that come into play. But God does do miracles. He does do the supernatural. And at the beginning and at the end of Jesus' earthly existence, we see that. see the incarnation. And then we see the resurrection. God intervenes. But it's for his purposes. It's for his purposes. It's not so you can find a parking space. I think we trivialize uh, God working supernaturally when we pray for a parking space. It's not that God doesn't care that you get a parking space. It's just that supernatural things, when God does miracles, it's for his Kingdom purposes. Now, if you getting a parking space allowed you to, you know, do something for God's kingdom, well, maybe that's true. But if it just made you walk less when you carried that big TV, um, well, maybe not. But here's the key. This is the gift. The gift is hope. Because when something looks impossible or truly is, we have hope. And here's the hope. The hope is not that God will do what we think he should do. It's not that God will get us out of our problems. No. Here's the hope. The hope is that his kingdom will advance whether we live or die whether we succeed or fail, whether he heals us or we remain sick, whether we're rich or poor, no matter the situations, his kingdom will advance. And that God hasn't abandoned, abandoned me in my problems. He's there with me. And he can use everything for his glory. But it's not simply the hope that he will get me out of my misery. And that's hard because, because, you know, that's not necessarily the Christianity we grew up with. It's not necessarily what we think should happen. It's one of these, these 
things that when we really believe, when we really believe in God's cause, then what matters is God's cause. Not my personal success. Not my personal fulfillment. And that's hard. It's really hard. But we put our hope and our trust in him. Because you know what that does? What that tells me is that whether I live or die, I don't do it in vain. You see, everybody else, people who don't believe in, in a creator God, people who believe this is just a cosmic accident that's someday going to end, people who believe in that, they have no, they have no way of truly, of truly believing, truly accepting that what they are doing is not empty. They can fool themselves. They can, uh, they can accept a temporary purpose, a temporary, like, oh, I did a good thing. I feel good about it. They can do all of that. But it has no eternal value. It's ultimately in vain. But if I believe in God, and I believe God has a purpose, and I believe his purpose is the advancement of his kingdom, then I know that whether things are working out for me or things aren't working out for me, I have hope that God's kingdom will still advance. And that's what I should have been about anyway. I shouldn't have been a Christian simply for what I get out of it. We talked about this this morning in, in Sunday school that, yeah, when we're baby Christians, that's what we do. We think about what we get out of it, what we get out of Christianity, what God gives to us. But as we, as we grow in our faith, we stop thinking about what we get out of it and we start thinking about, okay, God, how do you want to use me? Why are you giving me these things? Why are you teaching me these things? Why am I developing and growing in this way? How do you want to use me? And you see every blessing from God as a way to somehow bless others. It's about his kingdom. As we mature and as we grow, that's what, we, that's, that's what it is. That's what we get. That his kingdom will advance. I can have hope. I can have hope that... that that if my life, if my life had to be given for the cause of Christ, I have hope that long after I'm gone, when no one knows my name, when everybody who knew my name is gone, his kingdom will still advance. It gives us hope. It gives us hope that when we're alone and afraid, afraid, Joseph feels abandoned. The one who he loved most abandoned him. And now he doesn't know what to do. And he's afraid. And that's why the angel says, fear not. Fear not. And the angel doesn't say this, but I think looking back, this is 
what Joseph should have heard the angel say. Fear not. You are about to do something very hard. Very hard physically, emotionally, socially. You could lose all your friends. You're going to have to leave your business behind and go to flee to another country. People are going to talk about you. You're going you're to feel shame. All of this is, is coming on you. But fear not. Fear not. In fact, you're not even going to be around to see this all come to fruition. You're going to be out of the picture. But fear not. Because you have been entrusted with the Savior of the world. Fear not. See, Joseph wasn't, his fear wasn't going to go away because God was going to take away all the problems, because God was going to make it easy, that God was going to have King Herod change his mind or die. No. Joseph is still going to have to do some really hard things. And he's not even going to get to see the finish line. We don't have any evidence that he sees Jesus do anything that we read about in the Gospels. He doesn't get to see it. But he says, you're entrusted with the Savior of the world. Fear not. Fear not. And finally, we see here the hope, the hope that we can be saved from our sin. That Jesus came, the Savior of the world, to save, to save us from our sins. That no matter how bad, how guilty, how far away, no matter how much you think you've, you've, you've just become just so, like, like just taken over by, by the desires of the flesh or the, the, the depravity of our minds or by you know, our values of our culture or whatever else, and we just think we've made too many mistakes, mistakes, we've gone too far away. Maybe we remember a time when we were close to God, but it's no more. There's hope. There's hope. And the hope is a living hope. The hope is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And it's not just a hope without any, like, substance to it. It's hope that you can know. It's hope that you know because here's what the Bible says. You have faith in Jesus Christ he makes you new. He gives you his Holy Spirit. You have a reason for the hope. Because you know that when you had faith in Jesus Christ, something happened to you and you were no longer alone. It was no longer you living after your, whatever your desires were, whether they were selfish or selfless, it doesn't matter. You were just living according to your own ways. And you know something changed. You can know. 
It's not a blind hope. It's not a blind faith. It's a promise. It's a hope. And it's, an, it's a hope that, that is offered to the world. It's a hope that Christians should realize. And when they really understand this hope, they live in that way. Because they know their value. They know their value in that they were not just created by God, but they were created by God because God loved. And they weren't just created, they were saved. And they weren't saved from danger that God put us in. They were saved from our own rebellion. That even as enemies, that Christ still died for us. And we have hope. We have hope that our lives now are part of God's kingdom purpose. That as we live faithfully, that we know nothing we do is in vain. We have hope. It's the first of the gifts that God gives us. It's hope. And really, it's the only hope. When we look at our world and we look at the different ways our world thinks that it should solve all of its problems. We know how this ends. What's happening in the 21st century is just going back over what happened in the 19th century and the 20th century. And we know the hope. The hope is only when Jesus Christ gets a hold of us and changes us in such a way that we love each other in impossible ways that we could not do before. And it's on that we base our society. It's on that we base our community. It's on that we base our relationships. And to do anything else will not end well. It's the hope, the gift God gives and what disciples should want.